The Athletic. It's now just 45 days until the start of World Cup 2022, but is Qatar ready to host it? And what are the challenges and possible knock-on effects for the club competitions and even the January transfer window? I'm Mark Chapman. This is The Athletic Football Podcast. Joined from The Athletic by Matt Slater and Phil Buckingham, who've both written a piece that asks the question if Qatar is really ready to host uh, the World Cup. Uh, So for a podcast with the same title, they were the uh, perfect guests to book. Um, Here we go again, Matt. Don't we? I mean, isn't isn't this, isn't, I mean, I can't remember how many tournaments you've covered. I'd go, I myself go all the way back to Euro 2000 in uh, the Netherlands and Belgium. I think every every does, does, does are we not at the stage where every tournament has the same questions asked of it. Every major event, Olympics, World Champs, yeah, there's always around this time, you know, questions asked about accommodation, transport, security. It's a checklist, right? And it's 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 not a surprising checklist, and it's got to be done, and it's essential. And in the past, there would always be each venue would have a kind of Achilles heel, like an like an obvious problem, and that would be the focus. I think the thing about Qatar is because it's such a an unusual World Cup, such an unusual venue, sort of great unknown. Their tagline is a World Cup like any other. The questions are a bit more generalised. They're sort of like, well, it's all of them, right? We're a bit unsure of all of them. We we know you've had a long time to prepare. We know you've got a good budget, great budget, and you've hired a lot of great consultants from around the world. We've asked you these questions for a long time and you've given us answers. It's just a sense that we thought you'd be a bit more ready like really ready, and we think you perhaps should have tested this stuff a bit more, stress-tested this stuff before, because unlike so many of these other places that we've been to before, you really haven't done anything like this before, not to this scale, not to this type of event, and you are the smallest place that has ever staged a World Cup before. It's a city, Doha. It's 40-odd miles from the northernmost venue to the southernmost venue. It's a lot to take on. So that's it. So it's you're right, it's an old story, but with some quite specific new bits. I wonder whether whether questions are now being asked about how ready it is or the suitability, because, Philip, actually, a lot of the discussions, quite rightly over the last however many years, have been on the human rights side of things, have been on the lgbtq plus community have been on migrant workers and therefore in some ways the standard in inverted commas that questions that we would ask going into a major tournament have maybe been put further back down the queue as as we focus on on the societal issues i think you're right i think the focus has been on other things but the, the closer we get to it the the focus creeps back onto the logistics and you speak to people for this article and I, I, the recurring theme for everyone was that this was a, a giant leap in, into the unknown. You can be assured that everything will be all right, that the cabins built in the desert will be fine, the tents, the security, the transport links between, whether or not you could be able to get an Uber. We're, we're reassured that this is all going to be okay. But until you put this stuff to the test, that's where the concerns will be. And and that's the difficulty of it, that a nation like this cannot possibly hope to test these things. They, they had a, a recent um, test event at the, the LaSalle Stadium. There was question marks over that and little things that weren't quite right. So they've tried, but realistically, until you plant 
a million visitors into a country that's only got three million people living in it. How on earth do you possibly test these things out? And, and, and we've seen recent media stuff where you know that some of the cabins aren't aren't ready. And, and if you if you've booked into one of these things, you're going to have reservations all of a sudden, aren't you? And 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 because a lot of this is brand new, you, you can't go on TripAdvisor and, and and look at previous reviews and anything that's because everything is this giant step into the unknown. We, the subway system will never have handled so many people. The, the, the traffic on the roads will never have seen so many people. So everything is this giant step into the unknown. And, and we won't know if it works until we get there. I mean, you, you've, you've been out there, Matt, a, a couple of times. Do, do you now, with with 45 days to go, do, do you have an indication of what is and what isn't finished? Is that, I mean, if Phil talks about you know various accommodation and stuff, but is infrastructure finished? Stadia are obviously finished, I'm guessing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff around the edges is still to be done, but I'm sure that will be fine. I mean, I went at the end of 2019, just before the Club World Cup, that championship where Liverpool uh, went. You know, I sort of sort of thought that a lot of the kind of nuts and boltsy infrastructure, like the roads, seemed to be done. I mean, the Metro wasn't finished at that point. The airport was was good. Uh, they were still in the middle of their blockade, you know, when uh, they fell out with their neighbours, which, of course, is one of the reasons why things have got a little bit delayed. Um, so I know they spent a lot of time spending money on their ports. So they were shipping building materials in through the ports. I, I, I sensed that they were they were they were on top of things. But then I went well, we were there, weren't we, for the for the drawing? Was it March? Roads that I thought outside my hotel that were done were ripped up. And Doha itself seemed to be a building site again. And I'm led to believe it's because of things like the sewage system. They, did, they needed to sort of um, improve that because they can get flash floods in the winter. Uh, and there was sort of a good kind of a dash to finish things. Uh, I went back to the museum and the, that around the museum was a complete building site. Okay, maybe that's not going to be essential for football, uh, you know, football fans. But, you know, I don't know. But I just thought... Right, Doha seems to be more of a building site than I remember it in 2019. So, we've seen the pictures of the accommodation. I think some of the some of the you know the sewage stuff needs to be needs to be done. Um, the motorway network is there. I mean, it kind of goes in lots of different directions, and then four or five lanes. And you know, we shall see. And yet, people people that live there tell me they still have terrible traffic at, at certain pinch points. I know they're planning to close almost pedestrianised the main Corniche in, in, in the Bay Area. There'll just be one lane open, I think, for VIP. So that's just going to be interesting to see how Doha handles that. They have reopened an old airport. That's going to be the one that kind of does the the, the sort of the quick transfers, the sort of ferrying people in and out on you know, the day trippers from Dubai and Bahrain. So that hasn't been tested, though I'm, read to, I'm, I'm told it's done. So, look, I mean, it, it's hard to say. There was a big conference there about a week or so ago where lots of academics went and a few of them had a look round and thought, there's still quite a bit to be done. There's a lot of people working, but it's not quite finished. The size thing is a huge concern, isn't it, Phil? From a from a safety and a security point of view, really. I mean, you know, we saw what happened in, in Paris for the, for the Champions League final and the absolute chaos there. We've seen that... The awful events at AFCON where there were deaths, the tr- truly terrible events in Indonesia at the weekend, where there, where there, were, where there were hundreds of, of deaths. All these fans put in the same place in what is, as Matt said, essentially a city. There are going to be 
pinch points in not just in the stage around the stadia and and in the stadia there are going to be pinch points all over this country now the organizers will tell you this is the beauty of this world cup that that you can go and watch two or three games in a day and and and, and travel so easily between the two and I've spoken to fans. I've done a separate piece that's coming soon, actually, about the costs. And, and there was one fan who's coming from America who's got tickets for all the American games, but he's got tickets for others, and he's going to see 20 different teams, and that will be the beauty. You will never have been able to do that in another World Cup. But, but as you say, it, it brings all together these these huge logistical challenges because there's, there's three of the stadiums, I believe, aren't connected directly to the Metro. So... If you've got 40, 50, 60,000 at these at these games, how on earth do you get that many people away from the stadium afterwards? I think that's going to be an almighty challenge. And I, I know they'll have shuttle buses on. I know they'll have sort of taxi areas, but that that will be difficult. That will be hugely difficult. And and, and again, if, if you're trying all these fans crisscrossing across the city, different kickoff points, they're all staggered. It's going to be so difficult. And you can have these test events at a big, shiny stadium, but until you until you put that into practice with another three games going on in the same city in the same day. It's just, it's remarkable. And, and they are so densely packed in that, you know, from, from, from top to bottom, uh, is, it, is it 37 miles, something like that? It's, it's yeah. you know. And, 44, and, I think, but yeah, I mean. Right, yeah. Then, but, and then you've got Alcor at the top. Mm. That's 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 what like what Luton is to central London. It's, mm. it's, it's no different. It's, it's, it's going to be hugely, hugely difficult. That American fan that you've been talking to, I wonder whether the organisers have any kind of idea of how many people are going to be doing that kind of thing because it's all very well setting stuff up for the day trippers and assuming that you know, fans of whatever country will come in, watch their team and then go back to the cruise ship or back to you know Dubai or wherever it is they might be staying. But if you if you're if you're going to see twenty, this is my point. This is the whole infrastructure, small place. Even twenty thousand fans who are going, do you know what? We're going to enjoy this festival of football, and we'll go and watch Ghana against Uruguay, as well as watching our own team. The the pressure that puts on everything, rather than planning for people going out onto a ship and staying there, or you know, in in Dubai. He won't be alone. I, I think a lot of supporters will do this, and I think that that leads us into another conversation about. What on earth there is to do in Qatar and Doha? But I think I think a lot of people will go, and they've bought tickets for other days because they're sat there wondering, well, in between my country's games, what am I going to do? And I think for a lot of people, the answer is to go and watch another football game if you've got the money. Um, and 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 I guess if if you've got the money to go to Qatar, are you going to scrimp on another 60, 70, 80 quid to go and watch another game? It, it might be the the most fit, fun thing to do in, in in the city that day. It's and I think and again it comes back to this. This being a World Cup like no other, that that's even an option to you. And that, actually, if you look at the last three World Cups, Matt, you know, mm. which you've been incredibly lucky to cover, but South Africa and Brazil and Russia, first of all, huge, oh, yeah. huge. I mean, blimey, the games in Russia were taking place in different time zones, right? I mean, huge countries, but with so so much to explore and do. Well, I was in Moscow for, for all of the, the last World Cup. Uh, they had great weather. Um, it was quite an interesting time in sort of uh, global relations with mm. Russia. They were, you know, desperately trying to put their best face to the world. Um, there was a lot going on. I, 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 you know, Moscow's a huge place. It's got fantastically 
great. It's got an amazing public transport network. Um, it was very easy to get around. Oh, there was all sorts happening. I mean, I, I did a couple of park runs. You know, there was loads of food options everywhere. Um, of course, Russia did pretty well. So you had a nice buzz there. Funnily enough, though, and I think there will be some parallels here. Not many Brits went. Now, not many Brits went because it was immediately after the Salisbury poisoning. Relations with the West weren't great. So you didn't have many French there. You didn't have many Germans, Dutch, you know, the big European groups that tend to travel in big numbers. They were all down. Now, English guys came later as we started to progress in the tournament. But the people that provided the fun, the buzz, the colour, the you know, that, that, you know, in Red Square, in the streets around Red Square were... Were Mexicans, were South, you know, mainly South Americans, Peruvians. You know, it was a real, it, it was fantastic. I mean, there were there were other countries that were passed through, but it was a very, it was a very cosmopolitan sort of vibe, very South American and Central American kind of vibe, to be honest. That was fun, um, and they kind of made Red Square their own. There was an obvious sort of congregation point that's quite pretty, quite quite high end shops. But it just became like the the the, um, the informal fan fest, which is what most supporters love. They don't like certainly English fans don't like being herded to fan fests. They had those too, but they actually we the, most football fans kind of find them a little bit inauthentic. And I and I I do think that's going to be a challenge for Doha that they it's this sort of lack of authenticity, this sort of you know this sort of letting it happen. Although, although supposedly you can get a beer in those, you can. So that might change. Yeah. That might change. Well, that might change the atmosphere. Though. Beer, although, beer, music. You know, it might cost you thirty-five quid for a pint. Yeah, yeah, fifteen quid, I think. But well, they haven't set the prices yet because it's such a sensitive issue. You know, that's right. the thing. They don't want to kind of turn this into a into a you know a booze a boozathon. It's not a stag do for them. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of sort of things that we're really not going to know until we get out there until we see it. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From the conversations that you've both had, how difficult is this for brands and companies, this World Cup? I mean, the last World Cup was as well, actually, in places. You know, Obviously, we talked a bit about Russia on this. On this pod, but it was it was an issue for them in the last one, and it feels very much an issue for them. This, I mean, Hummel have, have toned down their branding, and that's had a very good reaction, hasn't it, Phil? How Hummel have done how Hummel have done their their kits for this. It's a fine line for companies here to actually show that they believe in the gestures that they're making, uh, and or and to make sure that they don't just look tokenistic. Yeah, it's the 
the age-old tightrope that that sport walks with with tight with with politics and, and human rights and everything like that, isn't it? It's um, and Hummel, in my mind, been very clever. If you separate the the human rights issue from it, this is this is great PR. This is from 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 that level. It's I'm, I'm sure they will sell a boatload of, of Hummel shirts for for this World Cup for for Denmark. Now, I think they've got a captive audience in Denmark. I think those Scandinavian countries. Very liberal. Uh, we saw Norway take a stand. They even voted on whether or not their team should should boycott the World Cup. This was a matter discussed in, in Danish Parliament whether or not the Danes should do the same. For Hummel, I, I think that it was it was almost an open goal. They could have easily missed it. They could have well, easily they missed have that done. open goal. You know, they there are done. plenty of companies who might have an open goal, and they'll they'll absolutely blaze it over the bar. They could have done, and, and it's perhaps easier for, for for a company the size of Hummel. If you're a company the size of, of Nike and Adidas, very, very difficult to, to to take any sort of stance on this. We're getting towards it now where even the teams and, and the, the, the national associations, that, that they've, they've kicked this can down the road for years, haven't they? And, and only now will we seen these federations make some sort of stand. And, and for some, it will never be enough, uh, obviously, with, with the, the One Love armbands that, that we're seeing now. Who knows? Are these even going to be allowed? Are FIFA going to be? Are FIFA going to allow them? Who knows? It's but it's this is this is something that they've kicked down the road for for years, and what we're now five six weeks away from it, and they're they're going to have to say something at some point. Dutch sponsors, the sponsors of the Dutch team, have all said they're going to tone down their activations around the World Cup. I think we'll see a more, I wouldn't say, yeah, kind of a, a more reduced level of, of of hoopla in lots of countries really the dutch fans uh, i'm told are going to are not going to really travel in large numbers there's almost sort of an informal boycott the german fan embassy that's you know the england fans do this great big sort of embassy thing where they kind of you know you know sort of create a kind of communications hub for fans the germans aren't sure if they're going to do it they're they're one of the ones that would often do that i, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how many come how they kind of congregate how they behave how sponsors use their world cup rights we've already seen in the last few days the last few weeks human rights watch amnesty international a lot of the campaign groups have really started to kind of ramp up their messaging around migrant workers and all the human rights issues that we've that we've talked about on, on other podcasts and they've written they're now targeting sponsors and uh, as of a couple of weeks ago i think it's about 12 13 official sponsors i think four had had, had signed up to this long-running campaign that Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, Amnesty International have been pushing for compensation for, for the families of workers who've died in Qatar. I think they were quite big ones. It was sort of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Visa. Now, that's still seven, eight, nine that hadn't replied at all, but I think the pressure will grow on, on, on those. So I, I, I suspect we're going to see a bit more of that in the next few weeks. Do we have any idea how actual Qataris are going to enjoyed this World Cup because that's the other big thing that you would always come back to you know that one a successful World Cup can often be based on the local team how they perform but also how the fans react not only to their own team but but to having the influx of of all the other teams in their country as things stand this World Cup isn't going to be on a free-to-air platform in Qatar, I'd be in hold hold the broadcast rights, and and that isn't free to air. So, how much of a buy-in do you both think we will get from the people who actually live in Qatar? Just on on the be-in issue, I will be amazed 
if Bian isn't available. All right? The Emir is just yeah. going to have a word. Yeah. All right? Yeah. There's no way there's no way Qatar does this. There's no way that Qatar puts up in their eyes with 12 13 years of of global scrutiny, people poking holes at their their, their beliefs. They, they, <laughs> that doesn't they, show. They, yeah, and then, and then does not show this to every Qatari and to every Qatari visitor. So that'll be sorted. All right? That'll, there'll be a quiet word. That's just going to be streamed free. I think the the big the question you, you know that you asked initially, what do Qataris think is absolutely fascinating. And and for me, it's going to be the one of the things that I want to find out when I go, because this is a state-run project. This is so tied up with their whole concept of nation building, their strategic vision for the country. How a small place like Qatar that has enormous wealth, relatively recent wealth from from gas, and uh, is in a really interesting and unstable part of the world, has always been quite cute and clever about how it's tried to be everybody's friend. You know, it's got Iran to the north, Saudi to the, to, you know, to its southern border. You know, you've got lots of lots of issues there. How they've how they've, you know, used media, Al Jazeera, to sort of kind of plant their flag in the in the ground. Uh, American troops are based there. They've welcomed American universities there, Cornell, Georgetown. They're all there. They've they've been clever, right? We are small. We are potentially vulnerable. We could be pushed around. We're the minnows in this this part of the world. But you know what? We've got money. We've got ambition. We've got a World Cup. Right, so from a from a government point of view, from a state point of view, this is incredibly important, incredibly important. But what is really hard to find out, because there isn't really a free press there, trade unions, political parties, none of that. What are the three hundred thousand Qatari citizens who have for twelve, thirteen years watched their country kind of their roads ripped up, things built at an incredible pace, seen the population of their country balloon with 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 migrant workers of all varieties? What do they think? What do they think about the impact on their culture and society? I, I hear, you know, people asking questions. Is, is Doha uh, an Arabic city anymore, an Islamic city anymore? Because there's going to be 40,000 people boozing in Albida Park in, 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 three, in six weeks' time. There's going to be um, Arcadia, you know, there's going to be DJs all night drinking till five in the morning. So, you know, there, there are people that have some, you know, questions about that. And then I think there's this other point. Well, even if we could just part that, because that's about being welcoming and that's, you know, it's only for a month. What has this experience done for Qatar's reputation? And for the people that travel, and we're talking about young men who go to university, for 10 years, when they've rocked up at university, first question, Qatar, you stole the World Cup. Second question, how many people have died? Third question, why don't you like gay people? You know, hold on a minute, it's all been negative. I've only just arrived. So you've had a, you've got a generation of Qataris who've been defending Qatar because of the World Cup. How do they feel? And and will events of the next month or the the World Cup month change that? I, I don't think it will. I, I I don't I don't think we're going to suddenly forget about the build up because we had a nice tournament and we watched some good football. Matt's right. I think the the Qatar's legacy will will be will be focused upon the build up to this competition, the human rights record, the lives lost. It seems slightly um, trite in many ways to go from the subjects we've been talking about to, to then finally what the knock-on effects will be on the, on domestic football, the Premier League in particular. But I, I sense, Phil, at the moment, there is this, let's just get to the World Cup and then assess where we're at. So 
from a lot of teams. Maybe not just in the Premier League, but it could be across Europe, that. So once we get to the World Cup, from who you've been talking to, are you anticipating utter bedlam domestically when teams get to the World Cup and they're not where they want to be? Again, I think it comes back to that uniqueness of this World Cup. I think only only when the season stops and everyone turns around and says, right, it's a World Cup in the middle of our season, I think only then will the sort of penny drop of how bizarre this is that, that a World Cup is taking place bang in the middle of a domestic season. It's it's just odd, isn't it? I, I, I don't think we'll, we'll understand it until we get there. Um, but I think clubs now are looking at the World Cup and it is this, this sort of five, six-week run to it now. They just want to get there in the best possible shape they can be and and that will heighten pressures because if, if you're a team down the bottom, I, I don't think you want to break for a month down the bottom, do you? You want to be in the best possible shape you can be and and it's, it's just jostling for 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 prominence at the minute. And I think that heightens pressure on managers. I think that's why we'll see, I think I think we'll, there's a good chance we'll see three or four more managers lose their jobs in the next few weeks because the, the significance of this period has been heightened by the World Cup breaking everything up. And and, and I think I think the difficulty will be when, when we get there, it's, the teams will, will immediately break up and go their separate ways. And, and normally will they come back again on, on a week before Boxing Day, if you're playing in the final, and, and that will have huge difficulties for for a Premier League manager. And I think the big winners in in all this probably Manchester City and Alf and Erling Haaland having a month on the beach. That is yeah. what a result that is for him. Well, and, uh, uh, Arsenal and Martin Odegaard as well, actually. In, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in in you know with well, where they're at. And do, would you would you expect? I mean, from what you've heard, if a team get to the semi-finals or or the final, are Premier League clubs in the main thinking about then sending those players on holiday for a week or two, or are they actually expecting them to be back for Boxing Day? I would think they'll have to have them back as quickly as they possibly can because they, we know we know what the festive schedule are like is like in the Premier League every single year, and it, it doesn't really ease up this this time around and. They, they they might be they might be canny with it and 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 think that they they will be best served by sending these players that reach a World Cup final off for a week, but they they can't they can't afford to leave, to let them disappear for a month or so to recharge the batteries because the games come thick and fast and before you know it we're back into the European knockout stages and the, the whole season is just condensed and I, I I don't think players can afford to, to to disappear on holiday no matter what they've done at the World Cup I think I think their clubs will demand it. I, it's the whole club v country thing again, isn't it? It's very difficult. By the way, you then get them back. You get them back, Matt, and 12 days later, 13 days later, something like that, the January transfer window opens. I mean, I mean, the, the, I mean, the disruption, mm. the disruption for clubs at all levels over the next three months is going to be huge. Yeah, it never stops, does it? And this is, you know, yeah. when you start moving summer tournaments to the winter, I mean, it causes havoc. It causes absolute havoc. And of course, we might be back here again in 2030 if Saudi Arabia get their way. By the way, do you think, mm. and I'm lumping every football authority together, yeah. but in the main, do you think the game likes the fact that it never stops? Or, and it's been a while since I brought the NFL into oh, any of our subjects, yeah. Yeah, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, but, or, should there, should, should there be... Downtime. Yeah, well, room for other sports. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, well, we we would all agree with that, wouldn't but, we? But, well, would we? 
I, I mean, Mark. What, I, room for other sports? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but, I'm not football. But, but, I'm not I, football but I, I, I do. But I know some people yeah. who find other sports boring mm. and, who, and who love it, who think that football mm. should be a 13-month a year. You know, they never stop. Cram mm. it in. And that's where mm. we're at now. And it is this mm. incredible soap opera. Look, we've, we've talked a lot about the negative stuff around this World Cup. And moving it to the winter, of course, is one of the big ones, one of the things that dominated the conversation for the first four or five years of this this, this enormous, great big book of, of issues. I do think we should, whether we're finishing here or not, but I'm going to, this is the point that I want to make. This could be a World Cup like any other, in a positive sense, right? This is the first mm-hmm. World Cup in an Islamic country. This is the first World Cup in that part of the world. This is the first World Cup where you can see lots of games. This is the first World Cup where a country like Qatar, which didn't really, people couldn't really find it on a map that long ago, can really announce itself to the world, can really say, yes, we can do this stuff. Yes, we are entering the sort of kind of global conversation in a really positive way. We're going to use sport to do that. Yes, we might learn a little bit more about Islamic culture, all of us. Now, there are some things here that could come from this that are positive. And I'd also add, and I think this is what a lot of, the Qatari organisers and their and their and their consultants are are, are are counting on, and I go back to things like the stories I was writing before London 2012, the stories I was writing before the Rio Olympics. The minute the sport starts, the minute someone scores a worldie, the minute a favourite loses, the sport takes over. The sport takes over, and that there's a I would say there's a better than 50-50 chance that that is exactly what happens. We have a week of stories about metros and queues and things going wrong and tickets not being recognised. I, I hope that's it. I hope it's that, that's it. But then we have a three weeks of football. Now, will it be worth it? What, should we go, yeah, 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 great, success? No, no. But I think that is how, there's a good chance that is how those four weeks will go. Matt? Phil, we will leave it there. Uh, to finish, I'd just like to point you in the direction of a podcast published on this feed on Saturday. It's called Taking the Knee, What's Changed? Conversation between the athletics Carl Anker, Roshane Thomas and Dan Barnes for Black History Month, exploring what has changed since the gesture was popularised ahead of Games in England in 2020 to highlight unity against all forms of racism. Here's part of the discussion. It's important to notice that or to note that this is this is a societal issue. This is about things that are bigger than sport. But through the prism that we view it, you know, this we got to view and you guys particularly got to firsthand view what it's like to see football's response to this and to see how this issue was dealt with by 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 sport. So to see something like this and to see so many teams and players, you know, incorporate this gesture and try and sort of show a level of solidarity towards trying to stamp out racial discrimination. I mean, what was it like to see that? Because I just don't think we've seen anything on this scale before, right? With me and Carl being one of the few black journalists in press boxes, I was phoning Carl asking, you know, what's your thoughts on this, bro? Do you feel like this should happen? Do you think that should happen? So we're all having regular dialogue in terms of what's going on as well, because for us being young reporters, this is something new for us in terms of what we're seeing on the playing field. And with us being one of the few black journalists in the press box, well, in my experience, I'm not sure Carl's the same, but I had white journalists coming to me and asking, do you think this is the right thing? So that also showed the impact of what was happening on the pitch. I also agree with Rashani that I had much more senior people in the world of football ask for me my opinion on on the taking the knee. It made me happy and sad. It it was good that people who have been 
in football journalism and football media for as long as I've been alive were going, I am not the expert. Carl, I'm going to ask you to take the lead here. Or Roshane, I'm going to ask you to take the lead here. That made me happy. It also made me quite concerned that I was seeing people in their 40s and their 50s who've been in football media and in sports media for 35 years going, what is going on about black people being discriminated? Uh, And it was one of those real sort of, how do you not know this? How do you not have a stronger grasp of how systematic racism can affect black people in sports? I was once speaking to a very, very knowledgeable football person. We basically came to the agreement that at a certain level, not understanding how racism works makes you bad at your job. Right. And I think when people say, why do we need to do this in a sporting sense? There's a there's an old quote that often gets misattributed to Abraham Lincoln, which is essentially people are a lot more protective of their interests than they often are of their rights. And at a time of a pandemic where there was no cinema trips, very little outside socializing, but football was on. It was very important to do a gesture like that, um, because for a lot of people, football was their escape or their release or their one thing outside of work. And I can I can understand that if you were not thinking too much about police brutality and systematic racism affecting black people, you might be a bit annoyed that you're one or three hours in your weekend where you're not thinking about the stresses of the world. Someone's making a very overt, here are the stresses of the world and how they affect black people. Would you like to help? But also I think the fact that we did that over and over and over and over and over again in what most people consider recreational playtime going i know it's your playtime but for two or three minutes can we have a moment to just think about how systematic racism affects black people that was really powerful one of the more consistent criticisms of taking the knee from people who i do not agree with politically is that it's a meaningless gesture it's forcing politics down our throat and to that i say it was never meant to be a meaningless gesture it was meant to be a very powerful gesture and unfortunately Due, due no fault of its own, but taking the knee became quite muddled and quite difficult. There were repeated instances where I was watching football games on television on, on UK broadcasters and I'm listening to commentators saying, here are players taking the knee in their stand against racism in all forms. I'm going, no, 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 no. Explain specifically why this gesture came about police brutality against black people, racial inequality, systematic racism, not racism on an individual scale, but it does occur on an individual scale. And that is often what people are most adept at understanding. But we, the reason why people were so shocked in 2020, the reason why people felt the need to do something, the reason why, I mean, even the misguided attempts to, to post black squares on Instagram, uh, the reason why those things occurred was because it became very, very clear that systematic racism and violence was occurring towards black people, and we believed enough was enough. The Athletic.